Well, welcome on this first day of spring. Uh, about the time I finish my sermon at 11.33, it will officially be the first day of spring. I'll try to finish a little before then. <clears throat> Back in the 1980s, NBC had must-see TV. Uh, and one of the, the great shows on must-see TV was Hill Street Blues. Now, a lot of you won't remember that because this is a wonderfully young congregation, but I see a few of us who will remember it. But it was the first of sort of the gritty serial uh, <clears throat> uh, cop shows with a, a cast that was the same every week, and you followed them on the job and in their personal lives and all that. Uh, I don't know what city it was in. If anybody can tell me, please do someday, because it was never obvious where it was. But at the beginning of every show, uh, the sergeant at the precinct, Sergeant Phil Estabrook, uh, would have everybody in the squad room, and he'd be saying, "He, you know, here are the criminals we're looking for. Hey, there's a big drug ring. Hey, this, that, and the other thing. And he would give people their assignments. And then at the end... Every show, you could count on it. Sergeant Phil would say, okay, be careful out there. Sergeant Phil was kind of a gruff character. He, you know, he rode them hard. But you could also tell that Phil Estabrook loved those cops. He wanted them to be safe. And therefore, he always reminded them, please be careful because it's dangerous out there. You're policemen. You wear on your back right? A little target uh, for people. You're entering into danger uh, as you walk out on the street, so be careful out there. Well, today, uh, as we come to uh, this story in Colossians, this, this passage in Colossians, we see that Paul is really the same kind of person. Paul's doing the same thing here. Uh, and that's because Paul is not just an evangelist. Paul's not just a theologian. This really thick, dense, amazingly rich letter to the people of Colossae uh, is not just cold theology, but this is a man with the heart of a pastor for a people he loves, saying, hey, be careful out there. We know Paul, we know uh, from his other letters that his well-being seems to rise and fall on the health of the churches that he has founded or that his other uh, people on his team have founded. We know that in addition to that list of hardships that Father Tim mentioned last week that Paul endured in his ministry, he tells uh, the church at Corinth, he says, that he always has the daily pressure on him of his anxiety for all the churches. Paul loves his churches. He loves these people have come, who have come to know and love Jesus and to find that he is the way, the truth, and the life. <clears throat> On his way to Jerusalem, at the very end of his third uh, tour, uh, missionary journey, Paul stops in Miletus, and he meets the elders from the church in Ephesus that he had founded. And he said, look, I'm going to prison. You're not going to see me again. But he wants to give them some last instructions. And so he says, be alert. Be on guard against 
those fierce wolves who would come in among you, not sparing the flock. He tells them that men would arise from among them speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul has a pastor's heart. He knows the dangers ahead for these people who have come to know Jesus, and he's warning what's ahead and how to avoid it. So today, he's investing, he's, he's addressing this group at Colossae in Asia Minor, what would be today Turkey. They had heard the gospel, the good news in Jesus Christ, that he had died to save his people, that in him was life and life abundant, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Paul says in chapter one that they had come to understand the grace of God in truth, and therefore they had received Christ Jesus the Lord. They had come to believe in him and to live in his way. They had found that new life, that new freedom, And in chapter 1, Paul rejoices in their faith. He says he gives thanks to God when he prays for them for their faith and their love for one another and that the gospel is bearing fruit among them. Paul loves these people in Colossae, even though he's never met them. It was one of his fellow workers, Epaphras, who had gone and preached the gospel to them, who had raised them up in their faith. Paul loves these people, and he has some concerns for them. Concerns that there might be some people among them who would lead them astray from the gospel, from the good news, from this new life in Jesus. Or that maybe people would be coming one day, find their way to Colossae and try to lead the people away, take them captive, as Paul says, kidnap them captive from the freedom they found in Christ and now bring them captive again by philosophy and empty deceit, he says, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. These people would bring a false gospel, if you will. And we know that this has happened in some of the other churches because Paul's talked about it in some of his other letters. In the letter to the Galatians, he talks about some of them. One of the philosophies that was probably around at that point, either in Colossae or might have come to Colossae, was this uh, early form of Gnosticism, this belief uh, that God, the real God, was super spiritual being and that body uh, was bad, matter was bad, and therefore God could never come in a person. God could never be in a body. Uh, And that in fact, the only way to reach this, this God was available only to the very special limited few who had the super higher, higher spiritual knowledge and insight that was given to them. It wasn't available to the man on the street. Couldn't, Jesus couldn't have been God because he came in the flesh. Human traditions. Well, one of the things Paul's undoubtedly thinking of is uh, there were some Christians who believed you had to become a Jew before you could be a Christian. You couldn't be saved if you didn't become a Jew first. 
And therefore that meant that like Jews, you had to be circumcised. And like Jews, you had to follow all of the law that Moses had given to his people in the Old Testament as the leaders did as we see in uh, the Gospels. Well, the Colossians weren't Jews. The Colossians, probably most of them were not circumcised. So Paul's concerned that somebody's gonna come to them and lead them astray, either through this Gnosticism idea or through this idea that they had to be circumcised. That somehow, basically, that somebody was gonna come and tell them you're not believing right. You're not doing it right. Jesus is not enough. That was Paul's concern for these people, that they would be taken away from what Father Tim has just, perfect word, taken away from the plot, the plot of life in Jesus. So he wants to make sure they stay the course with Jesus. He wants to make sure they don't get captive, taken captive by this wrong, these wrong arguments. Make sure they don't get led astray from the fullness of life in Jesus. So he tells them at the beginning of our passage today, right? He says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Notice Paul uses this little prepositional phrase six times in this passage, in him. See, what Paul's going to do is he's going to tell them the truth about Jesus because as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Truth will set you free from captivity or prevent you from going into captivity. Paul says, walk or perhaps live in him. Be rooted and built up in him. In other words, rooted and built up. Attach yourselves to him. Dig down into him. Burrow in. As one uh, wonderful bishop I met once said, tuck in to Jesus. Let him be everything. Walk in his way, just as Epaphras taught you. You found the way, the truth, and the life Stay in it. And then he tells them the truth. He says, well, as to this Gnosticism thing here, he says, in him, again, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily and is the head of all rule and authority. Paul's doing a little word play here because when he says the whole fullness of the deity, he's using the Gnostics word, against them because their word for, the, for God was the fullness or the pleroma. And Paul uses that word twice in this letter to the Colossians. He uses, uses it in verse one when he says, in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So he's saying that God the real God, the God that those Gnostics are talking about dwells right here bodily in Jesus. He's available to all of us. You'll hear the Gnostics talk about the pleroma. Well, here he is. Here it is 
in Jesus. That should leave them breathless. Jesus is God. Does it leave us breathless that Jesus is God? In him all the fullness of the deity dwells. He rules over all. He has all authority over everything. There's no court of appeal above Jesus. And as to the traditions, as to whether they had to become Jews, Paul says, hey, you've been circumcised. You don't need that. You've been circumcised by Jesus, putting off of his flesh, by the circumcision of Jesus, by the crucifixion of Jesus when he put off flesh and when he gave himself to be crucified. And not only that, but on his death on the cross, their debt to the law, they don't have, if they failed to follow the law, that's been canceled. Their debt has been canceled. They don't need to become Jews. And if that's not enough, Paul says, they have been filled or better fulfilled in him, in Jesus, in God in the flesh, the head and the rule of all authority. And by identifying with him in their baptism, they've been raised to eternal life. Paul is telling these new Christians in Colossae in this dense, rich passage that they're already on the right track. They've already got it right. They've received Jesus and they don't do any, need to do anything more. Jesus is enough. I love that song Michael chose for us this morning. You are more than enough, in fact. Well, you might say, great, great, Tanner Ross, but hey, permission to be frank. What in the world does this have to do to me, with me today, 2,000 years ago, this Gnosticism stuff, this becoming Jewish stuff? We don't talk about that anymore. What's it got to do with me? In fact, it has everything to do with us today. Because like the Colossians, we are susceptible to being taken captive. We are susceptible to being led astray from the real, full, abundant life in Jesus. We're being led astray by these philosophies, by human traditions. Maybe they're just not the same ones that the Colossians we're dealing with. Maybe they're not just the ones that were in the air at the time of Paul. But maybe we can think of the false narratives, right, that we hear in our lives, the false narratives that others tell us, some of the false narratives we tell ourselves that lead us astray, that take us away from the plot of life in Jesus. Some of them might be and I don't know about you, I, I was almost led to tears this morning uh, during the prayers for Ukraine. One of them might be, hey, this Christianity stuff doesn't change anything. Doesn't change anything. There's still all this pain and suffering in the world. What about a good God? How can you let this happen to these people in Ukraine? And how in the world can you let the, the Russian primate or whatever he's called of the Russian Orthodox Church be all in favor of killing these people in Ukraine? How can this be? But remember the people uh, in Egypt, the Jews, the Israelites in Egypt, 
God heard their cries. God not only hears their cries, but God suffers with them. Jesus went to the cross to share our suffering and our death. And Jesus, remember, is the head of all rule and all authority. Jesus will come back and Jesus will set it straight. That's the truth. Don't be captivated by any kind of nihilism or feudalism or despair. There is hope in Jesus despite this thing, these things going on. And at the same time, Jesus is active in the hearts and lives of people who show mercy. <clears throat> the hearts and lives of people who go to the aid of the, the lost, the least, and the last. People who go to the aid of the, uh, of the refugee. Jesus is alive and in the midst of this. Well, maybe a little bit more mundane. Maybe we get taken by the false narrative that the, the way I find meaning in life, the way I find fulfillment in life is to find the right job. Jesus is the one who fulfills us. That job may not be there tomorrow. That job may not give us meaning. Meaning is something so much greater. Or if only we had this or that political system or elected this or that particular leader. Do you notice sometimes we talk about our politicians in messianic language? That this person somehow is going to make me a better person or make us better people? Or maybe a false narrative that we have to justify our lives. I was just deeply moved years ago by a movie called Saving Private Ryan. The story uh, of a group of people during World War II, a group of soldiers who were sent to find one soldier. He was from a family of four boys, and all, th all four of them had been conscripted into the, or volunteered into the effort, the war effort. And three of them had been killed. And the secretary of the, the army had learned this and said, we got to get this guy out so that his parents don't lose all their children. And so this small force is gathered and they go out and they finally find Sergeant uh, Private James Ryan. And the story follows what they go through to try to get him out of the, the, the war theater. And they finally come to a point where they're not going to make it. They're overwhelmed by the German forces. And there's one way that they can get Ryan out, but they're going to have to stay and they're going to die while it happens. And the captain of this little group is dying. And he looks up at Sergeant Private Ryan and he says, earn this. Earn this. Earn what we did for you here today. Scene shifts cemetery at Normandy. Private Ryan is now an older man with gray hair. And he looks down at the grave of this captain and he says, I've thought every day about what you said to me and I have tried to live a good life. I hope I've done enough. And then he looks at his wife and he says, tell me, tell me I'm a good man. And she says, you are. But we 
do not have to justify our lives. The justification is in Jesus who has died for whatever shortcomings we have, whatever failures we make in life. Or maybe that our value or our worth is based on our social status or our sophistication. I was a poor kid from Maine. None of my family gone to college. I ended up in a very, very fine private school. Uh, And we used to have coffee in the dorm on Tuesday nights and Saturday nights after dinner. And we'd gather in the common room and the housemaster and his wife would be there and his wife would serve us coffee from this perfect silver urn in little demitasse. And one night she told the story of this unsophisticated girl who had come to New Jersey for one of the school dances. They were called tea dances. Uh, and she had come, and when the snotty uh, 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 housemaster's wife uh, was serving the t- coffee and demitas, the girl looked up and said, oh, demitas, real class. When she told this story to show how superior she was to that girl, And the poor kid from Maine took in from that, hey, I need to be sophisticated. I need to know the rules or else I'm not going to be accepted. You ever see, has that narrative ever come to you? Or maybe that the Christian message that we have to be cheerful at all times, no matter how, how much pain we're in, no matter how hard our circumstances are, we're supposed to live victoriously, which means I trust Jesus and it's going to be all good. Bishop Andrew dealt with that pretty, pretty well this week in his watchwords, that no, there are times when Jesus just sits alongside us and allows us to whine and cry and scream and, and loves us in it. Or perhaps the worst narrative is that we need to settle in. We need to get our job, our family, have our children, buy our house, get everything all settled before we can really give it all to Jesus. But the threat there is that we settle in and we never really follow and we get comfortable, which is exactly what God was afraid, what God knew the Israelites would do when they went into the promised land. You'll get prosperous and you'll forget me. Plenty more of these narratives, aren't there, <clears throat> that can take us captive, but they're all false. True fulfillment requires being part of something much larger than a job that may or may not meet our expectations, that may or may not even be there tomorrow. Being part of the restoration project inaugurated by Jesus is true fulfillment. No political system or politician can change the hearts of the people. They can't legislate kingdom hearts, kingdom behavior. It's only Jesus in him. Our, our hearts transformed. It's only in him that we can live kingdom lives. We don't need to justify our lives. We're justified in Jesus who gave his life for us. And we don't, we're not defined by whether we fit in with our culture's version of sophistication. We're fully accepted with our identity in him. And those powers that are causing continual wars and disruption 
and hostility in our culture, one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he will restore all the way it should be. So as you received Christ Jesus, walk in him, live in him, built up and rooted in him and established in the faith. Established in the faith, know the truth so that that truth will keep you free. And if you become captive, so that it will set you free. So this isn't about just having orthodox theology. It isn't about being right as opposed to those others who aren't. It's not about preparing us to be culture war warriors. It's about finding our home. It's about finding our foundation. Our foundation, the one who wants to be known, the one who can be known. Staying with the one who created us, who knows us better than even we know ourselves who loves us and wants what's best for us, even when it may not be evident, who never changes or leaves or forsakes us, who died that we might be free, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, who forgives our sins and calls us to leave them behind and go forward in him. My friends, Jesus is enough. So be careful out there. You've been forewarned. And now you're forearmed. Be strong and be of good courage. So let's take a couple of moments in prayer. Have you heard the good news of God in Christ? Have you understood the grace of God in truth and received Christ Jesus? Have you maybe been taken captive by other philosophies, empty deceits, human traditions, false narratives? If you have, take a few moments now to ask God to help you come back to your first love. Is the gospel new to you? Do you want to receive this Jesus? Tell him now. And then tell one of us and we can pray with you. Are you burdened maybe by ways you've rejected him? Well, Paul tells us at the end of this passage that he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Maybe you want to take, uh, just imagine writing down on a piece of paper <clears throat> where you've rejected him or gone against his ways. Write it down and give it to him and say, Jesus, take your hammer, take your nail, nail this to the cross.